A gospel that is not social is not a gospel at all. The book of Luke, when Jesus stands up to uh, at his inaugural uh, reading, he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he's reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Mm. To be poor is a social issue. Uh, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's a social reality. Right. To preach deliverance to the captives. That's a social reality. Mm. Recovery of sight to the blind. That's a social reality. Liberty to those that are bruised. These are social realities. So the Spirit of the Lord comes for social transformation. And anything, anybody who says otherwise have used the Bible to preach against Jesus. Wonderful people, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 124, and it's my conversation with Antipas Harris. So, how are you? Let's start. Let's start there. It's been, man, what 2020 has been wild. Uh, we know we're still in this pandemic. I don't know where you live. I live in North Carolina, and our cases are are going up. Um, we're hitting anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000 cases a day. Uh, we were just a couple of months ago as low as sometimes 800 cases a day. Uh, so things are going up. Hospitalizations are um, somewhat steady, but uh, going up. Basically, the governor said that things are not going the way we want them to go. And that seems to be the way it is in a lot of places in the world. Uh, so how are you? How are you handling all of the things? Uh, the election. Uh, I don't even know what's going on with that. Every time I turn on the news, it's just something different happening. Scary times. We are in scary times. Uh, so how are you? Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, I hope you're able to find some peace uh, in these difficult days uh, for sure. Antipas Harris is our is our guest today. And he wrote a book called, uh, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? And so today we're going to talk about uh, some stuff regarding race, uh, some stuff regarding, regarding color in the Bible. Like, did you know that Jesus wasn't white? I mean, shocker, right? <laughs> he wasn't white. Um, David, Paul, Peter, John, Moses, Elijah, all these people, they weren't white. And it's funny, like in the episode, I remember I told Antipas, like I, I grew up in the church uh, and I think like every picture I've seen of a Bible character, like 99.9999999% of them, they're white. Like they look like me, you know, and we would talk in the episode about the reality of that, but also the, the danger of that, because when you see everybody in the Bible as a white person, 
what what does that do to the way that you see people who are not white in your life? And if our seminaries and our churches would teach, really the the the, the color that is in the Bible, how might that make us a more inclusive and different people? And he's he's a super smart guy. He's got a PhD. And he wrote this book. He's wrote a bunch of other books as well. And just really, really, really uh, good stuff. He's also on staff uh, at the Potter's House with T.D. Jakes. And I don't know what you think of T.D. Jakes. I don't know what you think of the Potter's House. I don't really care. Um, growing up, growing up in the, in the evangelical world, once I got to kind of the end of my time in that world, uh, I started to... Uh, read some of T.D. Jakes' stuff and listen to some of his sermons. And I remember I developed a really deep appreciation for the way he would talk about God and the Bible and really seek to empower the people who were listening to him uh, to tap into their God-given spirit and purpose and, and soul and really do something in the world to make a difference. And I've always appreciated that um, about him. He says stuff and he rattles the cages of evangelicals because even like when I was in uh, in school and I would mention T.D. Jakes, I always got the eye rolls. And it was always about his theology on the Trinity or whatever, whatever. But I just love the way that he just fearlessly would challenge people uh, with the way that he spoke about God from the pulpit. And something about that inspired me I think to do the same and to really begin to push boundaries in the setting that I was in. I used to have a blog called morningencouragement.com and I would write about stuff, not 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 like we do here at the What If Project, but once in a while I would write something that would really push up against somebody's boundary. They wouldn't like it. And I remember in that time, like I was reading and listening a lot to T.D. Jakes and there's something about him just inspired me to do similar things and I guess what I'm trying to say is that whatever you think of T.D. Jakes, I don't really care. Uh, his fingerprints will always be left on my faith, and uh, I am grateful grateful for that. And so it was a real honor for me to talk to uh, Dr. Antipas Harris and just to kind of get his perspective on this very important topic of uh, racial injustice. And we, we talk about a lot of things. And I will say that the episode is cut short. It's only 30 minutes. Uh, because we had some major technical difficulties in the beginning. I sent him a Zoom link. For some reason, it didn't work. And we were both like waiting for one another to, to show up. <laughs> and we were like in different Zoom rooms. And uh, so we finally got it under control. And I tried to jam uh, what I wanted to ask him into 30 minutes. And I think it's a really fruitful conversation. I think you're going to really um, enjoy it. But go follow him on Twitter. I'll put all of his stuff um, in the in the in the show notes. Uh, in the show notes as well, uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show uh, financially. So if this has encouraged you, uh, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, that's a place where you can go to show some support anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month. Uh, there's multiple tiers in between. Every tier gets a reward. Uh, you can also support the show at the Heretic Shop. If you want to buy a hoodie, a t-shirt, a hat, something like that. Uh, wear it. Wear it proudly. Uh, there's the What If Project logo and website usually stamped on the back of the item. Uh, but head over there and, and check it out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, special music today is from my friend DJ K. Dot. We work together at the Apple Store. 
And uh, she's one of the most encouraging and inspiring young women that I know. She's doing really great things in the world, uh, really great things in the music world, and really doing a lot with her music to inspire and to encourage people. So head over to Spotify, head over to Apple Music, download her music, uh, pass it around, tell your friends, and blast it from your speakers. And all of that to say, once again, episode number 124, and it's my conversation with Dr. Antipas Harris. Enjoy. I know that there's something so special about you and me, babe. You got me, you got me, you got me feeling fine. So just say the words, cause you know what it means to me, babe. When you got me, you got me, you got me feeling right. Your eyes, your eyes hypnotize me, baby. Oh, your eyes, oh, your eyes Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're joined by pastor and author, Dr. Antipas Harris, who is joining us to talk about his book, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? Uh, subtitled, How the Bible is Good News for People of Color. So, Dr. Harris, welcome to the podcast. After we got through all of the technical difficulties, it's nice to chat with you. It's a delight to be here, Glenn. Thank you for the opportunity to have uh, this conversation, and thank you for having me on your show. For sure. So before we jump into the conversation, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, especially for our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with you and your work. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Some of the highlights of your story. Well, I'm Antipas Harris from a little town called Manchester, Georgia in uh, South Georgia. And I grew up in a family, uh, pastor's kid. Uh, there are eight of us in my family, three, uh, three girls, five boys. And of course, we had a lot of love and not a lot of uh, connections. So mm-hmm. we worked really hard, and all of my siblings uh, now are doing something meaningful with their lives. And um, I am now the president of Jake's Divinity School in Dallas, Texas, and one of the associate pastors at the Potter's House, mm-hmm. also in da- Dallas, Texas. Bishop T.D. Jakes is our senior pastor. Awesome. And uh, how many books have you written other than this one? Is this your first book? or I've written nine books. And we're, nine books. We're yes. <laughs> Excellent. So you're pumping out books. <laughs> I'm pumping out books, articles. I taught university for 10 years. Uh, and also, um, I've been a pastor for several years. Uh, my journey is quite complex, and the Lord has really blessed uh, me, I believe, in many ways. So I feel called to serve this present age and um, really to address uh, needs in our community, and mm. which are many uh, have heart for the community and believe that our faith uh, pushes us into the public square. Uh, my PhD is in practical theology with an emphasis on public theology. Uh, so as a public intellectual, I believe that uh, faith must engage uh, questions that are difficult and we must not run away from them. Uh, so. Uh, while I don't claim to have all the answers, I, I am one who believes in wrestling with the questions. I love it. And that's one of the things that your book does very well as it tackles a very big issue, especially in today's world with all the things that we have going on. And uh, I love it. So um, as I mentioned before we hit record, I will put it in the show notes for people. But one of the questions I love to ask authors is like, if you were in an Uber and you're like three minutes from your stop and your Uber driver says to you, you know, what do you do for a living? And you said, well, I just wrote this book. You tell him what the book is, and he says, well, what's it about? Why should I buy it? What's your, what's your elevator pitch or your Uber pitch for this book? What's it about? Who's it for? 
I would say faith is on the is is going through a crisis right now, and people have many questions about faith, particularly Christianity. And this book is uh, one wrestles with the question: Is Christianity the white man's religion? It tries to help the reader understand where the question is coming from, and then offer a response to the question. In that sense, it's an urban It's a work in urban apologetics. Did I need three minutes? I think so. I think you came in way under, so you're you're good to go. <laughs> so one of the chapters in the book, um, I think it's looking. Uh, I think it's chapter six. is called uh, the color of the Bible. And in this chapter, you give kind of a short history or explanation of how the Bible uh, and the major characters of the Bible, like David, Paul, Jesus, how these figures came to be seen or understood as being white or or fair skinned. And as a side note, like I can say from personal experience, I spent 38 years in the church and like 99.99% of the pictures I've seen of Jesus and other Bible characters growing up, like they're all white. But you point out that the reality is that this could not be further from the truth. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about why, like, why is that important? Why is it important for the church to recognize uh, the spectrum of color in the Bible? And like, what does that being able to recognize that, like what can that unlock in the world for the church? Well, first of all, I appreciate the conversation because there is multi-layered, right? At yeah. one level, why does it matter, right? Mm. But at another level and multiple other levels, it matters very deeply. Partly because uh, colonization and racism are two sides of the same coin. And mm. those two sides of the coin uh, actually developed North America, particularly the United States of America. And it was sponsored by religion, namely mm. Christianity. And so for 400 years now, there have been questions here and there that's percolated from time to time uh, as to how does a faith that sponsored uh, racial oppression and colonization in some of the, in the most hum, inhumane form of slavery in the world, how does that faith um, still survive? And and is it uh, the figment of the white man's or the Europeans' uh, imagination to control people? Mm. And uh, of course, uh, the slaves and slave churches sort of uh, reframed the faith in light of their own experience. And throughout uh, the last hundred or so years, the question has come up again and again, well, do you just reframe it or do you throw it out? Um, and of course, Nation of Islam asked this question with people like Malcolm X doing Jim Crow and others. Um, but also it has arisen again as a question uh, in the urban streets of America. Mm -hmm. uh, a student asked me, what do you say to folks when your friends leave the church and say, this is the white man's religion? And this student must have been about 22 years old and recently. And so it really spawned my own research and pondering, how do you respond to a question that is so sincere? Uh, and first of all, you got to understand the question. It's mm -hmm. easy to rush to, no, the faith is not the white man's religion, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think that the deeper um, contemplative response is, so where did that question come from? Mm -hmm. Why is that necessary for people to really, why is that changing people's mind today? Uh, and that deeper analysis of the question gets at, I, I think, the, the cynicism that is embedded in our culture today. 
yeah. uh, about the faith. And at that point, you start to question in everything, you know, um, are the characters of the Bible really white? I mean, the ones we've seen on television um, throughout the 1900s and mm-hmm. early 2000s seem to all be, you know, when right. I think Moses, I think the Ten Commandments movie. Right. And He's got a white beard, a white guy. <laughs> yeah, it's branded in my head. So I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible with these uh, with these images in my head that have been that were subliminal in images. Yeah. Um, and when I have a real f- question about faith and whether God cares about me, um, especially now with the whole conversation about Black Lives Matter, um, do I matter to God? And maybe I don't because all of God's people are white. In fact, Jesus is white. We've seen the pictures. Then it raises the question to another level. So it forces one to say, okay, were these characters really white? And what did it mean if they were? And was this really an original faith of Europeans? Or where did we go wrong? Or where did this all change? And it it just raises all these questions that people have. So then to defend what I believe to be an authentic faith uh, that does the opposite of what it has done, Mm -hmm. the original faith, um, we have to contend with the facts of history first. Mm -hmm. And then we can think about the Jesus of faith. And so, yeah, that's how we got there. What do you, like, what if we embrace this spectrum, like if we, if we invite this into our teachings in the church, if we invite this into our teachings and our, even our theology classrooms and seminaries, like what, what does this have the power to unlock in the world? Cause I'd imagine like, as I'm thinking about this and as I read your book, I'm thinking if I would have learned this kind of stuff in seminary, I feel like it would have put me on a fast track to be a much more inclusive person. Yeah. And I think that it's by design that it's exclusive because as I said, religion sponsored uh, colonization and and racism and it worked for the people who sponsored it so they mm. perpetuated it and it became part of the fabric of the american experience yeah or the american experiment as it were mm. uh and because it became part of the fabric of the american experiment um it's more difficult to rip it out right we can, yeah, we can cover it up but when it's part of the fabric you got to tear the fabric in order to get it out. And, and, and for the people this all works for, which are the, um, you wouldn't want to tear the fabric, right? right. <laughs> you yeah. Don't want to disrupt the system, right? <laughs> exactly. Don't want to disrupt the system because it works <laughs> for the people who care that it works for them. Yeah. Uh, but the, for the others, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, it, it, we can try to, um, you know, contort it, but it, it's not equal playing field. Mm. So more specifically to your question, uh, if we have an understanding of what the faith was really about in the first century, I think it, it sets the course for a more inclusive um, way of thinking about faith. And it becomes so incredibly important now because um, America is shifting. The demographic is shifting. There are more, there's more diversity mm. now than in the past. And there's a forecast of even more diversity. So the question is, a faith that sponsored a nation's development in an exclusive manner is now being challenged by the diversity that is becoming part of the the new identity of the country. And I think Christians have to rethink who we are, and we need to go back to the inception of a faith to rediscover that. Yeah. 
think rethink who we are at the foundation of who we are, right? <laughs> foundation, exactly. So page 29, you have this quote. Do you mind if I read it for our listeners? Please do. Awesome. So you say, how can we expect this generation to be convinced that Christianity is about love, compassion, grace, justice, and mercy when Christian voices and institutions are either silent or uncritically supportive of systems and structures that perpetuate pain, propagate hate, proliferate exclusion, and produce death? People are hungry for a faith that shows love and concern about injustice. People of faith must not brush off the urgent questions about the relevance of Christianity in the contemporary world. The, the time has come that we must return to a faith that listens to the broken world and responds with the love of Jesus. And even reading that, like for the fifth time that I've read it, it gives me chills because like, I hate to say this, but like, it's been my experience in the church by and large, like we are typically very silent about systems and structures that produce oppression. Like your book really forced me to reflect on a lot of my experience and just a lot of the, even the part that I've played in the church. And just an example, like I remember when uh, Black Lives Matter became a thing, uh, nobody in my immediate circle showed it an ounce of support. And the only words spoken about it typically were very negative. And those negative words often stemmed from, I think, a real misunderstanding of what Black Lives Matter is all about. I remember like when I started to be vocal about systems that oppress uh, Black people, women, the LGBTQ community, like my own church friends, my own church family, people who I've known my entire life turned against me with like a hatred I never really expected. Like I've been mockingly called, you know, a social justice warrior, you know, using this podcast as a platform to promote the false gospel of social justice, like so many things. So maybe talk to me a little bit more about your heart in that quote that I just read. Like, how do we help the branches of the church that refuse to uh, raise their voices against these systems of oppression to like, recognize the vital need for them to do that and and why like maybe expand a little bit more on like why it's so important that the church gets on board with this well first of all thanks for for that and thanks for the question a, a gospel that is not social is not a gospel at all yeah that's right in the book of Luke mm-hmm. when Jesus stands up to uh, at his inaugural Uh, reading, he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he's reading from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Mm. To be poor is a social issue. Uh, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's a social reality. To preach deliverance to the captives. That's a social reality. Mm. Recovery of sight to the blind. That's a social reality. Liberty of those that are bruised. These are social realities. So the Spirit of the Lord comes for social transformation. And anything, anybody who says otherwise have used the Bible to preach against Jesus. Mm. When you read that passage, I mean, that's, that's his mission statement, right? Like, that's, his, that's yeah. who he was. And, like, he was saying, yeah. like, I stand with people who are oppressed. So... When we remove if, that, if you don't, if I'm hungry and you don't feed me, yeah. If I'm naked, you don't clothe me. If I'm in prison, you don't visit me. And then you can be cast out to the outer darkness. So this is both at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he gives this inaugural reading, and then toward the end when he talks about, um, you know, feeding and clothing the naked. So this idea that somehow um, social justice is demonic—that in itself is a demonic statement. Mm. 
because people don't want to address these issues because it it disrupts their comfort. It's a selfishness that is embedded in uh, Christian expression in the in primarily in North America, but uh, certainly in the West, that I believe emerged out of the Enlightenment. And much of evangelicalism has glorified the Enlightenment in ways that is absolutely mind-boggling. Mm. We know that the the founding thinkers of the Enlightenment themselves were racist. They were white supremacists. Mm. They had negative vision of black people in particular. Yet the evangelical world has glorified the Enlightenment as some sort of um, gift to the Western world. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying there was nothing good in it, sure, but I am sure. must think critically about it. Namely, the selfishness that has e- emerged out of it. Even this idea of my personal savior—that's enlightenment. Yeah. Um, but if you look in the East, particularly in Africa and you look at the Ubuntu principle that counters the enlightenment, uh, I think therefore I am, um, the African Ubuntu people, or Bantu people, uh, use the word Ubuntu, which means I am because we are. It's more inclusive. Interesting. So when you think about the inclusivity of a social philosophy um, in Africa, you can understand the gospel a little bit more clearly. But when you're looking at it through the lens of I think therefore I am, the sort of individualistic approach, you fail to see the social uh, dynamics of the gospel. And the reality is where there is no social gospel, there is no gospel at all. Amen. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I read your book is that like, if we remove from the picture Jesus's focus on the oppressed, we almost make Jesus inaccessible or almost irrelevant to the very people that he came to reach according to his own words. Oh, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about like maybe the necessity behind repentance when it comes to these racial issues in America and just some of the things we were just talking about. And I asked that because one of the things that I've received a lot of kickback for in my own like personal uh, quote ministry here with the podcast is my feeling that even though I might not have had a hand in things like slavery, and even though I might not have a ha- had a hand in fueling racism, I still feel like as a follower of Christ, I have a responsibility to repent on behalf of my ancestors who, who did have a hand in these things and be intentional in reversing the effects of those sins that are on our world today. And so I guess my, my question is, first of all, how do you feel about, about that? And is that something that you think that the church may be needs to step into a little bit more. I think repentance is key, but if we approach repentance from the standpoint of personal savior, you know, I went on my knees and I repented, so I love black people kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of have a scapegoat and get a black friend and feel like you're on your way to heaven. One token, um, right? That, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's, or, or vice versa. A black person says, well, I pulled myself up. I went and got, I have two doctorate degrees. I'm a social pastor at a prominent church. And so if I can make it, they can make it, you know, personal responsibility. Mm. Then I have failed. We all have a responsibility here. We need each other. Uh, We have a responsibility because we have to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. uh, And we also have to address it from a holistic perspective. So not just a personal repentance, but a social repentance, an ideological repentance. We need to change the way we think. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the uh, the the, the Re- Reformation, um, it happened in the middle of a bubonic plague uh, when Martin Luther um, wrote the 95 Theses on the wall of the church when we had the recent outbreak of the Black Lives Matter protests after George uh, Floyd's death. I couldn't help but think about, um, you know, protests historically have accompanied Mm. Uh, pandemics. <laughs> right. uh, interestingly enough, we're mm. protesting in the streets, but are we protesting the church? Mm. Uh, Martin Luther wrote 95 Theses on the church's door because the church needed to rethink its way of understanding faith uh, and how it treated its own people. Remember, it was a time when they were selling indulgences uh, and it was a corrupt pope that started that and um, that was a way of oppressing people socially yeah. and trying to force them to buy their repentance in mm. part. Um, so there is this interesting connection between social uh, trauma and religious transformation. Mm. Uh, and so I think what we have now is a real need to think deeply about what it means to repent. Mm from the standpoint of ideological and religious um, misinformation and misdirection. Do you have any thoughts about like what it could look like on a practical level for um, a church, for people to come together in an act of, of repentance? Because obviously like words, words don't matter as much as action. So like, I'm wondering, I'm just sitting here listening to you talk and I'm wondering like, what would it look like on a practical level for people to come together and to perform some act of repentance that could maybe move the needle forward a little bit. Good, yeah. I think one, if we really think about black, white, right? That's one false reality, but it is, it's, it's like a false dichotomy, but it is a, it's a social reality. Etymologically, mm-hmm. it makes no sense. Socially, it does. Biologically, it doesn't make sense, but socially it does. Mm. Um, so one way that we can address that issue, one way not to do it, let's start with that, mm. is we start to get in white and black congregations together and washing each other's feet, taking pictures, and then do that every year as something, as a memorial. Mm. That's not what's needed, right? Mm. Yeah. But within the church, we need to do something that's even more radical than that. There are mm. denominations that were built to fortify segregation, Mm. right? Those denominations don't need to just acknowledge it, but they need to find ways to rethink how they engage with the other. Mm. Um, I would even go so far to say some of them need to be disbanded and rethought. Mm. That's radical, but it gets at what people don't want to do. They want to wash feet and all that. Some of these things need to be uprooted and start all over. And the nice thing is many of us can't even go to church right now anyway. So it's a good time to think about it. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, need to rethink about it because some of them are closing down. Just think about how you just join together with that other church. I'll start something new. We need yeah. to give birth to something new. And this is what we see acted out in the streets when we talk about the monuments mm. being pulled down. Things need to be pulled down and we need to memorialize something new. Don't just try to hold the structures yeah. and smile at each other and nod at each other because that's not going to make bring transformation in the long run. Yeah, we got to. These are these are unprecedented times that require radical transformation 
on, on the part of the church. And it really is going to pull down some sacred cows. Um, it, it really is. Yeah, it reminded me the other day I was reading in my Bible when, you know, God told the Israelites to pull down the Asherah poles, you know, to smash the altars oh, yeah. to pieces. Yeah. It wasn't like he just said, go and have, you know, a dinner and go and, you know, invite people. Like he said, go and smash them to pieces. Like it's time to rethink everything in this land and do it differently. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, and I don't want to get too far off the subject, but sure. that's part of the conversation about defunding the police. Right. Right. Part of the point is not that we don't need um, criminal justice in our society. We don't need, we're not saying we don't need, you know, um, you know, safety patrols and sure, things like sure. that. The point is we got to rethink the way we have done stuff because it's not working. Right. And we have enough creativity and education in our society. We have research, for God's sake, right. that will point toward new ways of doing things. But because these old ways have been some, become such sacred cows, we rather make it great again rather than start something new. So right. um, the thing is that we have got to take what we've had, the experiences we've had seriously, and carve out a new reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that either we decide that as people of faith or somebody else decide what it is. Mm. And that's where the church started losing ground because Martin Luther King Jr. talked about it um, being a headlight rather than a taillight. Um, the church tends to be a taillight. You know, you start a Black Lives Matter movement about George Floyd, we go out there and march like 100 days later, right. and we go out there saying, we're going to do a unity march, we're going to show you how to do it right. Well, you're late. Right. There's been, I mean, there were shootings in 2017. Mm. And now you 20 to 100 days late after this one. The church has got to get out front and stop being a taillight. We mm. got to think about how to carve out something new. Because if we don't, someone else, somebody else, somewhere else is going to do it. And we're just going to stand on the sideline and poke holes in what they did. It's like we're not doing anything. You got to be radical. Yeah, to exactly. do something, you have to be radical. Yeah. And radical doesn't mean violent, by the way. I didn't say violent. I said yeah. radical. Yeah, define, actually, that's good. What, what, do, what is the difference between... A lot of people today think that, like a lot of the talk is that, you know, radical means violence. So what do you mean by radical? Radical means do something that is absolutely unorthodox, untraditional. Yes. That's right. Uh, something that uh, would not be expected. It doesn't fit within the status quo. Yeah. Uh, come up with a new reality that you will be persecuted for from your own religious people. Mm. Um, but it doesn't violate the integrity of the gospel um, yeah. from a true, from its, in its truest way. Mm. Uh, now, when we do that, there is a type of violence that happened, right? Because uh, you're disrupting and destroying systems and ideas that previously existed. Mm. So it's not physically violent, but it is ideologically violent. Right. Um, and and so I, I, I think I even think that you can be physically violent, but if you're not ideologically violent, you just recreate the same thing with a different look. That's right. There's a difference between violence against humanity and violence against the system that oppresses humanity. Right. Scripture tells yeah. us pull down, destroy the right. imagination that exalts itself against God. That's yeah. violent. Yeah. That's ideologically, spiritually violent. You know, spiritual warfare is about spiritual violence. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, and sometimes we don't want to disrupt that which works for some, even though it oppresses others. So going back to your illustration about being a headlight versus a, a taillight, uh, last question for you is what does it look like for, for you to be um, headlight in terms of the things you speak about in your book about, you know, tearing down these systems of oppression, being a defender of, of human rights? Like how, how does it look like for you, Dr. Harris, to be radical about that in your life? And then also on the other end of the spectrum, what does it look like for you guys to do that at the Potter's House? And I ask that because we have a lot of a wide spectrum of people that listen to this podcast, some people who you know, were part of the church, grew up in the church, and now they might never step foot in the church again. We have other people who actually pastor churches. So I think like on an applicational level, if they could hear you talk about what this looks like for you and your life and your ministry, that would be super helpful. For me, scripture also teaches that we know in part, we prophesy in part, right? Yeah. So uh, we're all on a journey. I don't have a claim on mastery of this, mm. but I do say that I have a heart and a desire to move towards something new. And I believe that the work that we're doing at the Partis House is exemplary of at least moving in a good direction. Mm. Uh, our bishop, I mean, many times, like this is another thing. With the black church, we suffer from what other people say we think, yeah. rather than understanding what we actually think. Mm. Um, especially coming from sort of a black Pentecostal background, spirit-filled world, uh, much uh, ink is spilt on trying to describe us without us actually saying that that's who we are. <laughs> uh, and for example, uh, I've read tons and tons of work that describes what we do as prosperity gospel. Yeah. Uh, not one time does that literature actually quote us or our bishops saying that we're prosperity gospel. Mm. And it, as described by the ones who created the prosperity gospel idea, mm. it's because it's not true. Yeah. Um, we are we are an empowerment. We are a gospel empowerment people, spirit filled empowerment. We're about economic empowerment. Mm. We're about educational empowerment. We're about social empowerment. Mm. And if you trace everything that we do, it is all about empowering people to be who God calls for them to be. And there are a lot of different ways to say that. But um, whether we're talking about women without loose or something else, it's all about empowering people to be all who God called for them to be. Mm. And so for me, that's the attractive thing. Uh, and what I'm trying to get at in the book is that God loves everybody and all mm. God's children are equally important. And it becomes the, the call of the church to, to empower people um, by the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ to become all who God created for them to be. That is the good news, right? That's the good news. That's Absolutely. the good news. And to do that, you're, you're working against, you can't do that in consistency with society because mm -hmm. society is not about empowering everybody to be equally who God called for them to be. Yeah. Um, it, uh, capitalism doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, so, but the gospel does. And that's why uh, I think that the gospel um, for me I don't subscribe to any ideology, any ideology, any ideology politically or political mm. ideology um, to drive my perspective. Mm. I subscribe to what I believe to be a Jesus um, politic. I think too, what, you know, going back to the kind of the main, the bulk of your book and you talk about empowerment, we talked about the difference between the East 
and, and the West in terms of the West being very individualistic, um, the East being more group focused. I think your, your book really shines a light on the importance of a lot of times in churches, you know, it's preached in the West that, you know, it's all about empowering the individual. Like, you know, you can be all that you can be for you and, you know, you can tap into your best potential for you. But I think your book really shines a light on the fact that the, the gospel and the good news is about empowering people. It's about empowering humanity in order to drive the world to the place where God has created it to be. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Well, Dr. Harris, we're just about out of time, but I thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and uh, talk with me. It's a delight. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, sir. I'll put all your links um, in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.